uh, and chapter 5. And if you want to, you can put your finger in Isaiah chapter 61 as well. We'll be referring to it uh, in the course of this message as well. Um, We're going to do something slightly different tonight. Um, And if my Cornhill tutors were here, they'd wrap my knuckles. But um, when the cat's away, I guess I can play a little bit. But we're going to take a a view of Luke um, and these chapters from about 25,000 feet. That is, we're going to look at the big picture. And we're going to look at the whole forest and not just some of the trees, if you want to put it that way. And we're going to try and take a a look at the theme, uh, a certain theme, the theme of the kingdom of God, that actually runs through the gospel of Luke and how that all uh, works out uh, in the gospel. Um, So we're going to look and we're going to be dipping in, landing on certain places and then taking off again very quickly. Um, So you're going to have to try and uh, work with me here as we rush through these first chapters of Luke's gospel. But that's what we want to try and do. So let me pray for us before we start. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to uh, hear your word once more, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might see you, the, the true God, as you really are. That you would open our ears, that we may hear and understand uh, the message of your kingdom. And that you would open our hearts, that we would receive that message. That we might go from this place, not just to be hearers of your word, but doers also. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it was uh, in 480 BC that an army of about 7,000 Greeks marched to a place called Thermopylae, where they were to block the entry of the Persian army under King Xerxes, that is, Xerxes of Esther's fame, if you know that book, uh, block its entry into Greece. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure that story well. Um, you'll have seen the very accurate Hollywood version that uh, we came out a few years ago, 300. It was a very famous story, of course, the, the, the last stand of the 300 Spartans who fought and died to the, to the last man. But how do we know that this event so long ago actually took place? Well, until the early 20th century, when archaeologists actually investigated the site, the pr- only primary sources we had were, was a book called The Histories by a Greek historian known as Herodias. Herodotus, rather, and a few other accounts from other ancient historians. Now, the interesting thing is about these accounts is that Herodotus was born around the same time, maybe just slightly before the events of the Battle of Thermopylae. And when he wrote this book, his histories, uh, about the Greek and Persian conflict of the time, all that took place was still in living memory. And his histories, in his own words, were only what has been passed on to me. That's what he said of his own book. Herodotus was was not an eyewitness of what took place at Thermopylae. He received only what had been passed on to him uh, by others who most likely were there and the stories and traditions that had been handed down to him. Yet even with this, uh, Herodotus' uh, account is classed as accurate and it's classed as true. I'm not aware of any historian who would doubt his writings. And when we approach Luke's gospel, we have a very carefully researched historical document. For whatever else it is, it is that. 
And Luke himself is, of course, not an eyewitness to any of the events that he records in the gospel. But he writes down for us a history of the events as they were handed down to him by eyewitnesses. Luke, we know, spent a lot of time with Paul, and he himself says in the first chapter that he researched these things thoroughly that were passed down to him, and he commits them to writing so that Theophilus, whom he addresses it to, and us today can have certainty in the things that we have been taught. Historians, when they come to Luke's gospel, understand that what they are reading in Luke is history. It's true in the same way that Thermopylae is true. These things took place within space and time. Whatever else we think of when we read Luke's account, it's correct and I think important for us to understand and have confidence that this is real history. This is not some religious book with some nice stories which teach us some good moral lessons. It's actual historical events that we must take very seriously. Yet Luke, as we know, is more than just history, for it's history from a very, very specific perspective. For Luke, the events he records here in the gospel and in Acts have some very significant meaning for everyone. His his perspective, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, is that about he's recording historical events which are the fulfillment of, of expectations that had long been believed in Israel. What Luke writes for us are not isolated historical events, but the realization of promises made centuries, even millennia, before the events actually took place, the events that he describes. Luke sees these events surrounding the person of Jesus as the fulfillment of the expectation of the Messiah. God's anointed king who would come to undo the work of the devil, bring harmony back to creation and to God's people. In short, here was the one who would come to crush the serpent of Genesis 3. The one who would undo the mess left behind by the first Adam. And as he goes through the birth narratives in the first chapters, uh, the birth of Jesus, he is showing us that this baby is the son that was promised to Eve in Genesis 3. That's why, if you notice, uh, in chapter 3, Luke gives his, when he gives his version of the genealogy of Jesus, he traces it back to Adam and not just to Abraham. But as Luke records for us uh, as well, he, re- he records for us the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in, in chapter 4. And there's also a very important fulfillment that he records for us there as well. Uh, in the synagogue... Jesus, now a recognized traveling rabbi, stands up and reads a few verses from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61. And he tells the people in the synagogue that this very prophecy that he has read has been fulfilled. It's been realized in their hearing on that day as as they watched and listened to Jesus. This mysterious person whom Isaiah so long ago had had talked of in terms of a servant, in terms of an anointed one, someone to whom God would show favor, this person is now revealed to them. This long-expected Messiah figure, this king had come and Jesus was claiming to be him. 
Notice what it says in chapter 4. He is anointed by the Spirit, which of course we know that it happened because Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John and the Spirit comes upon him. This is now the beginning of his ministry. An anointed, spirit-filled ministry in the terms that Isaiah speaks of. In short, what this passage of Isaiah 61 that Jesus quotes, what this came to be known as was the kingdom of God. A time which God had promised when the fortunes of his people would be restored, when the ancient ruins of Israel would be restored, when his enemies would be overthrown and the creation would again have harmony. Jesus sees this new kingdom, this new age as, a, as beginning right there, right then with him. As he would go and preach good news to the poor, as he would proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. As he brings freedom to those held in bondage and to release those who are oppressed. To re- the recovery of sight for those who cannot see. And it's this agenda that we see unfolding as Jesus begins his public ministry. For him, the idea of this kingdom was the most central issue. And in Luke, we find it coming up again and again. It's the first thing that Jesus spoke of, the kingdom. And as people misunderstand it, there is hostility. And as people embrace it, there is healing and release. Now, as Luke writes this account for us, he sees it very much in terms of the coming of the kingdom. As he lays out these stories and the events of Jesus' life, we need to keep that in mind. So as we look together at chapters 4 and 5 very briefly, as we scan over them, I want just to keep that central theme in our mind and take a look at this big picture. So three things we want to see about the kingdom. We want to see the message of the kingdom, first of all the miracles of the kingdom and the mission of the kingdom. If you like alliteration, there you go. Message of the kingdom, the miracles of the kingdom and the mission of the kingdom. The first aspect of this new kingdom that would come would be the announcing and the preaching of good news to the poor. And if we look at chapter 4, verse 43, we find that, that, that it's this preaching of the kingdom that Jesus sees as his main task. This kingdom has now come with him and he must preach it to the people. He came to announce that God's kingdom, this new messianic age, had come to call people to repent and to believe in the gospel. And this was to be preached to the poor. That in this context is not an economic term alone, but rather to the poor in spirit to those who were waiting for the coming kingdom, those who were seeking God and his grace, those who needed God and his grace. Jesus came to announce to them the end of the ages, the pouring out of God's grace and also his coming judgment. The message of the kingdom would be good news for it would bring the compassion of God to a sinful people. But it would be bad news for those who would reject it. (sighs) 
So with the anointed king's arrival, he brings this message of the kingdom. He preaches and teaches this message of the Messianic age. He preaches and teaches that God has decisively intervened in the world of human sinfulness. And in short, the world will never be the same again. I guess you could put it like this. It's a bit like when you have a new baby. The first thing you want to do is that you want to announce it to other people. It's not something you want to hide away or keep to yourself. It's, it's a great event. It's something that's special. It's something that's new. It needs to be announced. So as the new age appears with Jesus, he comes to announce to the world that the kingdom has come. This is Jesus' agenda. No matter who you are or where you're at in your life, the good news that he preaches, this good news of a kingdom, is indeed good news for all of us. For it brings with it God's offer of forgiveness, his offer of restoration to those who are indeed poor, who do not have God, who do not have hope. To those who understand that they are sinful and need of mercy, it is the announcement of favor and grace to those who do not deserve it. But as Jesus announces the kingdom to the people, we find Luke also records for us that he, he demonstrates the kingdom, for he performs miraculous signs. As this new age that Jesus announces unfolds uh, in first century Galilee, and as Luke records it for us, we find Jesus performing many miracles. He heals the sick and the disabled. He drives out demons and so on. Now again, let us understand that Luke is writing history here. The record of the miracles is not something that we just explain away. It needs to be taken seriously. Luke writes as a doctor. He would have known uh, what he was talking about when it comes to the diseases and the disabilities that Jesus dealt with. He would have known whether or not these people were faking. Indeed, he may well have even met some of them in the church. And of course, today, there's still a very strong belief that, that miracles are impossible and therefore must be disregarded. Any, any reference to a miracle in the Bible must just be thrown in the bin. A belief that come, came from one of Scotland's own sons, a man called John Hume, whose statue now is in Edinburgh. Hume, uh, what can we say about Hume? <clears throat> well, Hume basically said that, well, Miracles were so unlikely that even if one were to happen in front of him, he still wouldn't believe it. How can you deal with such things? But today, all, uh, and today all our, our modern scientific understandings, you know, surely we can say that science tells us that, well, miracles can't happen, can they? Well, actually, I, I agree with science. Yes, miracles can't happen. That's the point, isn't it? From a scientific and probability point of view, miracles are totally impossible. That's why they're called miracles. They're not something that usually takes place. They can't be explained by scientific definition. They are, by definition, extraordinary. They are supernatural. And once you accept that God can intervene in the world, that isn't actually such a surprise, is it? After all, that's what Jesus himself has been saying. God's kingdom has now arrived. God has intervened. God is doing something in the world. 
In chapter 5, we have the account of the man with leprosy in verse 12, uh, and then the story of the man with paralysis. We also have the, the miracle of the, the great catch of fish in the beginning of chapter 5, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law with a fever in chapter 4, and the driving out of the demon. But the thing is, why does Jesus actually do these miracles? Why are they necessary? What are they telling us? Well, you see, as the kingdom comes with Jesus, as it is announced by him, he's demonstrating for the people that the Messianic age, the end of the ages, has arrived. In the Bible, miracles uh, usually come only in times of great uh, spiritual conflict and at times when God decisively acts in history for the salvation of his people. So we have the story of the Exodus with the great miracles and that God dealt out on, on the Egyptians. If you read that story, you find there what is, what is taking place was that God was judging or overthrowing the gods of Egypt. There was a great spiritual conflict going on. And as he does that, he liberates his people from the oppression and bondage that they have in slavery. He sets them free from Israel, or from Egypt, and they are set free. And of course, this extended on into the time of Joshua as he led the people on into the promised land. But then the next great time of miracles came with, with the prophets, uh, Elijah and Elisha. Again, Elijah had that great contest on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah on his own. A spiritual battle took place and they were proved false. God overthrew the false idols. And of course, it was during this time uh, of Elijah and Elisha that God's remnant, the remainder of God's faithful people were brought together. And the rest of the nation was judged as for its idolatry and went into exile. And then in the time of Jesus and the apostles, there was again a time of miracles where God acted once more for the salvation of, people, of his people to judge the dark forces. But this time, it would be the beginning of the end for all those who stood opposed to God and his kingly rule. Now, it's no surprise that the first thing that Luke records Jesus doing when he was baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit is to confront Satan. And the first miracle that he does, Luke records, is to drive out a demon. For the miracles themselves show us that the kingdom, show us what the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is like. As the kingdom comes, God is driving out dark spiritual forces and bringing his kingdom, his rule to bear. He is bringing the kingdom of light. As Jesus brings the kingdom, the forces of darkness flee away. Like when you switch on a light in a dark room, the darkness is chased away. So the miracles signal the victory of God, the victory of the kingdom over the dark spiritual forces that hold people in bondage and in fear. But of course, these miracles are more than a mere victory over the dark powers. They give us a glimpse just a glimpse into the restoration of the kingdom and the harmony, the shalom, the peace that will again be brought to creation and the relationship between God's people and the creation. The story of Peter and the great catch of fish, good example of this. Remember at the fall, what did God do? He cursed the ground and from that human beings would be frustrated by work. Their work would be characterized by frustration and hardship. 
The relationship between the creation and human beings was one of strife and toil. Now Jesus comes. And as Peter and his partners have struggled and had a a frustrating time in the Sea of Galilee, they caught absolutely nothing all night. Jesus appears to bring restoration. They cast out their nets and they take a huge catch of fish. An astonishing catch for it surprised even hardened hardened fishermen like Peter. Jesus has the ability to restore the relationship between the creation and human beings. The effects of the curse are being undone before Peter's eyes. So these miracles are recorded for us to help us to see just what this new age that Jesus is announcing will be like. An age when the frustration of the curse will be taken away and harmony again restored. And as Jesus does this, Peter, as recorded in chapter 5, begins to realize that this person that Luke is recording for us, this can be no mere man. No mere teacher, but something altogether far more wonderful, far more powerful. But not only do we see the restoration of the creation, but we also see the restoration and renewal of the body and the effects of sin on human society. As Jesus heals the man with leprosy, in verse 12, with a touch and a word, the effects of the fall and sin are being taken away. As the the sickness and disease hold this man in oppression, as as it isolates him from his fellow man, now Jesus restores his body and the effects of sin and allows him to see his family and his friends again, to have human contact again which the leprosy had denied him. I'm not saying that it was this man's personal sin that caused his leprosy, but rather sin in general as it degrades and and pollutes the world that God had made free from such things. This miracle helps us to see that the new kingdom will bring renewal for people and release for those who are helpless in the face of terrible disease and the social stigmas that tend to go with them. And the same can be seen for the man with paralysis. Here too was a man who needed renewal. His body was broken. And he found that Jesus was able to heal, renew him so they could get up and walk home. Maybe for the first time in years or even decades, we don't know. The new kingdom that Jesus was bringing, that Luke records as our having arrived, was one of victory, one of restoration, and one of renewal. They are showing us what is in store for those who are part of God's kingdom. They are glimpses of a new world. Like light piercing through a pinhole, they demonstrate the reality of the promised kingdom to those who will believe in Jesus. But there's something even more important that these miracles help us to see. And Jesus highlights it in this story of the paralytic. He was a man who needed his body renewed. Yes, that was his most pressing need. Yes, that was the issue, was it not? So why then does Jesus turn to him and say, friend, your sins are forgiven? This man came to be healed of his paralysis. Why is Jesus talking about his sin? Well, Jesus is highlighting for us something very important. That the greatest need of this man is not actually the renewal of his body. 
It's the renewal of his relation, not, not the, the renewal of his relationship with his fellow human beings or, or the restoration of his relationship with creation. There is something far more important than any of these that this man needs. What this man's most pressing need is, is to have his relationship with God restored. What this man needs is to be forgiven for his failure to live life with God as God in his life. He needs to be forgiven for his rebellion and failure to live God's way in the world that God has created as a creature before his creator. This man's greatest need is for God to redeem him, to rescue him from his sin and its consequences. And as Jesus heals him, he is showing that he came not just to restore creation, not just to heal the body, but much more importantly, to forgive our sin. These miracles are redemptive in focus, if you want to put it that way. They help us see that Jesus, as he brings this kingdom, came to heal us of the greatest problem of all, the problem of our sin and God's judgment on it. Sin separates us from God, leaves us under that coming judgment. But through faith in Jesus, there is forgiveness. There is healing, there is restoration, there is redemption. We can experience that favor of God that allows us to go free from punishment. A punishment that we rightly should, should receive as we come into this new kingdom. But notice also the reaction of the Pharisees to what Jesus actually says to this man. They rightly see that, of course, no man can forgive sins. That that is God alone's prerogative. They are totally orthodox in that belief. Yet Jesus is able to heal the man with a few words. If Jesus at this moment couldn't heal the man, then they could have dismissed him as a blasphemer, as a liar. But as soon as they see the miracle... Surely they must see the obvious. That the king of this new kingdom is no mere man. No mere teacher, no mere healer, no mere worker of miracles. But God himself. God himself amongst them in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself has come to bring his kingdom, to bring the forgiveness for, Peter, for, for sinners like Peter for lepers and the sick and the demon-possessed, held in bondage and oppression, for tax collectors and the stigmatized like Levi. Jesus has come to heal our greatest need and most pressing concern. Ultimately, that would be achieved at the cross where he himself would take our sin and allow us to be free from its consequences. This Jesus who Luke records for us came announcing a new age, He came to demonstrate it to those people and these miracles that it is coming and has come. And finally, he came also on the mission of the kingdom. When Jesus came, he managed to rub an awful lot of people up the wrong way. The Pharisees, the religious authorities hated him. The people in his own hometown tried to kill him. Why, if he came with such great news, would people act like that towards him? 
Well, part of the answer lies in the expectations that were present among uh, the Jewish people about their Messiah. They saw the Messiah as one who would come, of course, to, to conquer the Roman army, kick them out of Israel. He would come and restore the house of David and the, the kingdom of Israel once again. The Messiah would judge the enemies of Israel and overthrow them and vindicate the, the, the Jews. Yet Jesus didn't meet any of these expectations. For him, the kingdom was not about military might or national greatness. The kingdom was about redemption from sin, about restoration from the effects of sin. Notice how he responds to the Pharisees when he's eating with Levi in his house. The Pharisees don't understand why, why is this Jesus, why is this person who claims to be the Messiah, why is he sharing fellowship with tax collectors and sinners? Those whom they saw as being totally outside the kingdom. For, for the Pharisees, these people were traitors to Israel. They deserved not mercy, but judgment. For them, the Messiah would come, of course, to, to vindicate their strict, pious lifestyles. And to, to bring doom for tax collectors. And sinners, those who were, were part of the establishment. These people were part of the Roman establishment. They were in bed with the Romans. Why is Jesus with them? If Jesus is this Messiah, how can he hang about with such people? Yet Jesus sees things very differently. For as he comes bringing the kingdom, he sees it in these terms, his own words. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. For Jesus, the reason he had come into the world was not to call the religious or the self-righteous who thought they were okay. Rather, he came for those who desperately needed the kingdom and the forgiveness that it brought. For Jesus, the kingdom was not about the pious, but it was about the poor. For Jesus, the kingdom was to be announced to sinners like Peter and outcasts like Levi. To the stigmatized like the leper, and the paralytic. The kingdom was not about robes or royalty, but about the offer of God's grace to those who were outside it. Of course, that's exactly what we see Jesus doing, isn't it? It's the agenda that he quoted from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue in Nazareth. The year of the Lord's favor has come. The mission of Jesus was to preach it to them, to show it to them, and ultimately to bring them into it through his death for them. But if we look at that passage from Isaiah 61 for a moment that Jesus quotes in the synagogue, we find there that this new messianic age would be if we read through the, the book of Isaiah, especially the, the final chapters, we find that Isaiah has this vision of, of restoration for the people, but yet judgment on God's enemies all mixed in together. And no doubt that uh, the Pharisees and the people in the synagogue would have known that. But when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, he does something very interesting. As he announces his mission of the kingdom, he cuts verse 2 of Isaiah 61 in half and only quotes the first part of it. Let me read the complete verse. 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where Jesus stops. But the verse doesn't stop there. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. From Isaiah's perspective, some 600 years before Christ, he saw this messianic age as one of both salvation and judgment all rolled together. Yet from Jesus' perspective, there was a gap between the proclaiming of God's favor and the day of vengeance. Jesus came on a mission to announce a time of repentance and to bring forgiveness of people, for people. The Messianic age would begin with the announcing that the kingdom had arrived. The king had come. And there was an opportunity to experience God's kindness and repent. To repent before God. Then judgment would come. And bring the overthrow of his enemies and the final restoration of the whole creation. Which of course the miracles demonstrated. Jesus was the Messiah and he had come not as God's executioner on the sinful people. But as a servant who would die in the place of sinners. And allow people through faith in his death to be part of the kingdom of God. And escape the day of vengeance that was to come. It's a bit like when the troops uh, landed on the beaches on D-Day in 1944. That was it really. The war was over as soon as they landed. Once they there, Hitler was beaten. But of course, it took another year and more until VE Day, the final victory. There was a gap. Jesus came for sinners. Outcasts, idolaters to offer God's grace. But he will come again to judge the world. And bring the new heavens and new earth. The kingdom would come in two stages. And the age we now live in is indeed an age of grace. Where there is time for repentance. For Jesus, his mission would be shared with not just Israel but the whole world. And of course that's why he calls uh, Peter, James, John, Levi. Uh, or better known as Matthew if you don't know that. Uh, as his disciples. For remember, of course, Luke didn't write just one book, he wrote two. The kingdom that came with Christ would be announced to the world by a group of fishermen, a tax collector, a freedom fighter, and other sinners whom Jesus had called to himself to be his, his apostles. Jesus' perspective was bigger than the national boundaries of Israel. This new kingdom would be announced and it would go to the very corners of the earth. His disciples would take this message of a kingdom of God's favor and they would go out to the nations with an offer of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the rescue from judgment. The mission of the kingdom would continue beyond Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension and continues to this day. As we, his disciples, still announce the good news of God's kingdom, as we still preach good news to the poor, as we still wait for the day of vengeance of our God and the restoration of all things. Luke writes for us history. But he shows us the history 
uh, of Jesus' life and the story of his death and resurrection. But of course, he doesn't want us just to believe these stories as historical events. Rather, he records this history of Jesus and the coming of God's kingdom into this world so that we can believe in the one whom it's all about, the one whom Luke records. So so that we can see and know that all these stories are, are part of God's story. His plan of salvation for a world that that he loved so much that he was willing to send his son, his Messiah, to rescue it. Luke wants us to see that this offer of God's favor is open, open to us today. No matter who you are or no matter what you have done, no matter what race or religion, what disability, what stigma is attached, the kingdom, this grace of God is offered to all to those who are willing to hear, to those who are willing to believe, to those who will repent of their sin and their failure to love God and love other people, to place our trust in the king of this kingdom, to place our trust in Christ alone, who can bring us into that kingdom, who alone can restore us and has promised to heal us in that kingdom when it comes finally and fully at the end of the age and who alone can rescue us from the wrath to come. I was joking with uh, our American brother uh, before lunchtime that it wasn't too late for America to come back into the Union and I'm sure Her Majesty would be delighted to have America back um, as part of our United Kingdom. But I don't think they were that overly enthusiastic But friends, there is a far, far greater kingdom that is offered to us. A far greater kingdom that we can be part of today. A kingdom that is open to all who will repent and turn to God. All who will be followers of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's King. Luke leaves us with certainty that what took place in first century Galilee as this Jesus figure arrived was no mere historical event but the very pinnacle the centerpiece of all history where God himself intervened for all time for all eternity to save his people through his one and only son Christ our king will you believe in him and will you trust him to be part of that kingdom today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that you sent your son into this world, that he brought with him your kingdom, that he brought it, Lord, to bring for us hope of forgiveness, restoration, renewal. Hope, Lord, that we could be sons and daughters of God. Hope that in the age to come, Lord, and a new heavens and a new earth, that we would be free from judgment and reign with you. Lord, we thank you so much that we can know with certainty these things, for you have given them to us in your word as Luke has written them for us. Help us, Lord, in the weakness of our sinfulness, to trust evermore in Jesus Christ, to live evermore as kingdom people, 
and to be on that kingdom mission that he has sent us to be part of. Amen.